these kinds of issues about power, about what currency means and what currency delivers to people, they're really important conversations. And I do think, I think we owe it to audiences is to help them understand what that means and to unpack some of that talk. Because often we talk about the buzzwords of wanting to include people, but we don't tell them how to be included in the conversations we're having. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a new source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Money Reimagined. Usually around this time of the year, a little town in the Swiss Alps plays host to a massive crowd of the world's most powerful political business and NGO leaders, along with their entourages, a giant press corps, activists fighting for just about any cause you can think of, and a colorful array of wheelers, dealers, and opportunists of all stripes. There, in Davos, they create an event like no other in the world. I've been lucky enough to experience this, once as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, when I actually got to attend the World Economic Forum's annual meeting itself. But more recently, I've been there as a hanger-on, a member of the riffraff amid the various blockchain and crypto communities who congregate in the many sideline events that go on around the town. It was there in Davos three years ago where I first met my podcast partner in crime, Sheila Warren. Sheila, of course, has been instrumental in raising the technology's profile within the WEF's calendar of research events and dialogue. I tell you, Davos in midwinter with its icy, narrow, snow-lined mountain roads is the most unlikely place to host such a complicated gathering. The whole thing, with its security challenges, its attendees' demands for creature comforts, the great diversity of humanity and representation, the high-level discussions hitting pretty much every topic you can imagine, the late-night parties, and the cramped living conditions that most of us have no choice but to accept, can seem like an impossible circus. Yet every January for 50 years, the WEF's Davos annual meeting took place and continually grew in size and stature. Every year, that is, until this one. COVID-19 has shut Davos 2021 down, at least the physical version of Davos. The show must go on. After all, this year, the economic, social, environmental, and of course, public health issues that tend to headline the forum's agenda are of greater urgency than ever. So this week, the WEF's team has pulled together a remarkable program for a fully virtual conference they're calling the Davos Agenda. Many of the topics on discussion fall well inside the purview of our interests here at Money Reimagined. So with the benefit of having our very own WEF insider, this episode is dedicated to discussing that event and how some of the big themes around blockchain, digital currencies, and the reimagination of money are being handled within that. To help us with that, Sheila has invited Adrian Monk, a managing director at the forum who heads up its public and social engagement. In Sheila's words, he knows pretty much everything there is to know about the forum. So let's get straight to it. Welcome to you both. 
Hey, Michael. Thanks for having us. So Adrian, why don't you just talk through how we got to this point right now? I imagine extremely challenging decision to move from a physical to a virtual agenda. There is still plans, as I understand, to have the May event in Singapore, but that's going to be, I imagine, also extremely complicated. So talk a little bit, if you don't mind, just about that decision-making and how you ended up in this situation now and how do you hope to look after it going forward? Sure. Last January was probably the first time people got together and kind of actually thought about what was going on in China. In fact, Stefan Bonsell, who's the CEO of Moderna, uh, told us a few months ago, he said, you know, the first time I actually realized how serious COVID was, was getting together with Jeremy Farah and some of the other big medical folks in Davos and looking at the numbers. You know, from the moment we became aware of how serious it was, you know, we shifted to a fully digital, fully online kind of approach to what we do, which, you know, apart from Davos is we bring people together to move stuff forward. And so we devoted that to COVID and we produced this thing called the COVID Action Platform, which brought together suppliers, logistics, all the kind of people who you need to get from having an idea about how to make a vaccine to actually delivering it and actually trying to create the conversations and trying to create the partnerships between governments, businesses, and all the other folks who need to be involved in the conversation to make all that stuff happen. And so as a part of that, we kind of tracked forward and said, are we really, really confident we're going to be able to be back in Davos in in 2021? And we were hoping and hoping and hoping, but realistically, as time progressed, you know, the vaccine progress, the rollout progress, you know, pushed further forward. And uh, it just was not possible to do a safe Davos in Davos. What we decided to do was to do a virtual Davos. And we've had, you know, everyone from President Xi to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu this afternoon to John Kerry to, you know, 30 or 40 heads of state and government from the G20 and others and BRICS. Incredible lineup of people, incredible lineup of panels. And we've delivered it all on Zoom, basically. So it's been a kind of giant digital party. Yeah, it's still going on. It's been, let me say, challenging. The word you use when everything's like, blimey, we just got away with it. (laughs) (laughs) Blimey challenging, absolutely. (laughs) What about Singapore though, right? I mean, still a green light for that. Explain what the goal is for Singapore. Is it a hybrid event? And the logistics there must be challenging too. So I'm actually off to Singapore in about two weeks time. I'll be putting into practice the same kind of protocols that any other traveler will have to put into practice, which is, you know, testing before you go, testing every day when you're in Singapore, keeping to a strict bubble, keeping to strict quarantines, all those kind of measures. You know, you can't be 100% about anything in the current environment, but we're pretty confident with the Singaporean authorities that we can plan to have a meeting at the end of May that works for participants. And there is this huge desire that people have to meet in real life. You know, we all love Zoom. We've come to be familiar with it. We know we can put nice backgrounds up. And we know how to kind of look engaged when people are speaking, don't we? You know, that kind of like, <laughs> yes, I'm really paying attention to you. I haven't just put a loop on of myself sitting here. Although you sometimes you know, wish you could, right? It would be helpful. Jeez, oh, wouldn't it be so nice <laughs> to have a little perma loop, a nod, yes. nod, loop, nod, nod, loop. Oh, Adrian's um, paying attention, isn't he? Yes, very good. Yeah, he's very so attentive. Engaged. So engaged. So we know that people want to connect. And it's the one piece of feedback we've had from this week so far from people is like, we love the interactions. We love the virtual space. We love what you've done with it. But we really, really, really want to meet people and see people. You know, May is, I think, the earliest opportunity that we have 
to actually get people in a physical space safely and securely. And Singapore probably is best place to be that space. Now, can we, with all the variants and all the other stuff going on, guarantee it? Can't guarantee it 100%, but we're making all the plans to make it happen. Had colleagues go to Singapore. I'll be going to Singapore. I think the plans that we're putting in place are pretty robust, pretty sensible plans. So I'm optimistic about being able to bring kind of one of the first meetings of leaders around the world together in, in Singapore in May. You know, just behind the scenes, some of the people we've been talking to this week, some of the world leaders, you know, they're enthusiastic about the chance to get together with, with other leaders and meet, and, and they see Singapore as being a, an interesting place to do that. So Adrian, you know, as you noted, the forum, the annual meeting has been occurring for 50 years, I think, Michael, as you noted, and and certainly it's remarkable to think this time last year, the conversations that were happening that in part led to the awareness, as you noted, of COVID-19, the severity of it, and that really directly led to some of the lockdowns going into effect, different places around the world and different companies already starting to think up how to ramp up production of certain kinds of uh, equipment and materials that were going to be considered critical for this, uh, not the least of which was, you know, investigation of pharma into vaccines. But I'm curious to kind of talk a little bit about the trajectory over that 50 years. And one thing I'd love to understand, so by the time I joined the forum, so I joined the forum in 2017, my first Davos as a, as a forum staff person was 2018. By then, technology was already a big topic at the annual meeting. There were, you know, we, we certainly saw CEOs of big tech companies having a lot of opportunities to discuss things that were happening in the world, inequality, other kinds of issues. What did the trajectory look like about technology? And how has the forum adapted to the advent of big tech or technology platforms as being major players, protectors of the global commons? Some of these CEOs have made you know, huge strides in being protectors of the global commons. I'm curious to understand a little bit what that history or that journey has looked like for technology within the annual meeting. And within the annual meeting, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I bring together every year a group of people who help support all the media stuff that we do. One of the team who's been with us a long time, he'll tell you about when he went and bought toothpaste for Mark Zuckerberg, who was like 20 years old and coming to Davos, you know, before he you know, had seven people working for him. The kind of archaeology and kind of mystery of Davos is kind of embedded in some of the very ordinary, humble people who work and produce it. They've been watching as these tech titans have kind of come with an idea and kind of grown up almost with the forum. You know, the Google guys came before Eric Schmidt was there. I think Eric even probably met them in the course of a Davos. The whole of the technology sector almost kind of emerged with it. And there was a point in the, in the mid-2010s where, you know, it was easier for people to meet tech titans in Davos than in Silicon Valley. That dynamic has changed as the companies have changed and things have changed. But also the forum tries to keep up with what's going on. It tries to stay on the kind of, you know, with a bleeding edge of technology rather than the cutting edge. It gets in those people who are just starting out, the people who are just something new and stays with them. You know, Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, you know, always says, you know, Klaus... Schwab, who's the, the guy who started the forum, and, and my boss and your boss, uh, Sheila, I mean, he went to CMART when, you know, there were like 25 employees at Salesforce. And back then, I think Mark could actually explain what Salesforce did. Uh, that's, how, that's how old the connection is. Yeah, it's kind of Davos was already old when technology was young, but it kind of, you know, it was a second youth or something for the forum when technology broke away and kind of took off. 
I want to get to Mark Benioff actually because he he had some interesting things to say in that opening session that you had about you know stakeholder capitalism that you know of course is is Klaus Schwab's big concept. But you're mentioning the early days of these tech guys and how they grew up at the forum inevitably leads me to start talking about, you know, a a key theme for us. We're a show about money reimagined as, you know, the title, and we deal directly with digital currencies, blockchain, and so forth. And there's a real parallel there. Sheila and I were just looking to figure out like, when was the first time that that Bitcoin was mentioned at Mm. the World Economic Forum? And, And as far as we can tell, we think it was 2015. Since then, of course, you know, Sheila's come in, really driven this initiative to build out the conversation around blockchain. But for the most part, there's no real tech titans yet, I would say, amongst the blockchain crowd who are there. We know that there are some people in the blockchain community who are indeed part of the forum and have participated in it, but it still feels very much like fringe, right? There's the outside world. You know, maybe Sheila, you could talk to a little bit about what's going on there. Like what's your role in sort of taking this radical outsider crowd a little bit and infusing it into the conversation that the uh, the forum represents. Yeah. So when I did just a really quick, you know, I, I can't say this was a forensic analysis, just kind of looked back at our sessions. And in 2015, there was a session called From Bucks to Bitcoin. And that was the first uh, instance I could find. It was a little bit of a, a quieter, you know, a smaller session, I think, within the Congress Center, which is where we host uh, the bulk of the events, the formal events for the formal program. Michael, I'll actually embarrass you a little bit because I also found uh, a blog post that someone, agenda blog post, agenda is the forum's blog, someone wrote kind of recapping the 2015 uh, annual meeting where they actually mentioned your book. So kind of buried in this was like, oh, you know, Bitcoin is poised to become a big topic of conversation. And they mentioned, I think that was the year, right, that you and Paul's book came out. I confess that I did see that at the time and I got a big buzz out of it. Yes, and our book was Rashid Tabakawala from Publicist. Paul and I were over the moon that we got mentioned in a, in a Davos blog post in 2015. It's not something we'd expected, but I mean, it feels like that was the beginning of it. So what happened after that? You know, I think that the fact that Bitcoin got a mention in the title of a session, a public session in Davos in 2015 means that it was on radar well before that, because that's kind of how these things tend to work. And Adrian, you can kind of, you know, guide me in terms of how the programming team works to create some of this topical, very current cutting edge content. My understanding is that That was really also a very seminal year when Klaus Schwab realized that the new technologies that were kind of emerging, so blockchain distributed ledger technology, AI, you know, IoT smart devices, even drones and 3D printing, like things like this really were creating a new industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution. And so he anchored that concept in a book that was published shortly thereafter. And that also led to the opening of the San Francisco office outpost, as we call it, of the forum, which is when I came on board. So I think we broke ground in early 2017 and sort of started hiring. It's a great moment for San Francisco because previously, I mean, no one had really heard about San Francisco <laughs> and, and it, it was really off the radar, really off the radar. Know, especially, especially for technology. <laughs> no connection there whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after the forum put San Francisco on the map, uh, they hired a number of us to come in and really start these teams that were focused on the way we think about this is we work in policy and governance. And so the goal of this entire uh, outpost here in San Francisco really is focused on mitigating risks of new technologies, accelerating benefits, societal impact, but also thinking about the interconnection of these technologies and how they are intersecting and playing together with traditional business and with governments to really create a new world. And so I do think that'd be really interesting at some point to almost look back and do a counting of kind of how is the rise of sort of tech titans and their prominence, even on the program, the annual meeting program, right? And in the conversations happening in and around Davos 
uh, kind of paralleled this understanding that some of our systems, our financial system, our monetary system specifically to the point of our show, you know, really did, there was a bit of a reckoning that needed to be done. And you see that in the rise of fintech as a general portfolio, a general portfolio around investment, but also, you know, the attention it was attracting from VC and others. I find that fascinating. And we've come a really long way where now, you know, we recently launched what we call a global futures council on crypto. So we're really thinking about crypto as an embedded part of the financial ecosystem. And rather than this kind of fringy sort of thing, which I mean, certainly it remains, the awareness of it does remain in a relatively small, even arguably tiny minority of the population of sort of sophisticated, you know, financial actors. Nevertheless, the role that we feel it's going to play, and then by we, I mean the forum feel it's going to play and is already playing in helping to rethink and reimagine, if you will, the financial ecosystem is really powerful. And we're just starting to see the beginnings of that really land and be grounded. Adrian, what's been your response to the emergence of the blockchain fringe finding their way and, and people like Sheila driving this agenda? From my position, you know, as a former journalist, complete befuddlement, um, really. Um, <laughs> hey, I somehow you know, managed to get over my befuddlement, but uh, it took a while. I, I, I'm definitely going to have to read your book now. But uh, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I'm still struggling with my credit card number. I think it's always interesting to see things break through. I think that's what's fun about, you know, work, especially working in, in the area that Sheila and I work in is you're kind of always trying to see what's the next wave going to break. And I think with Bitcoin and crypto, you know, watching it kind of come through and you're right, it hasn't got to that phase now yet. It's kind of 1996 and, you know, some young Jeff Bezos out there or somebody or uh, is saying to themselves, you know, not just books, maybe something bigger, you know. And we're not there, but watching it kind of move on and move up is fascinating. And I think and knowing who will be a force in the future, seeing how we can help the kind of change come, I think all of these things are what makes working at the forum so interesting because we can kind of help with some of the things like the Global Future Council that she was talking about, actually prepare people for the implications of change. And, you know, those implications can be policy, they can be regulation, or they can be investment decisions, you know, a whole range of different things. Yeah, well, Sheila, I mean, if you look at the two sessions that you've been very involved in, and, and I'm involved because I'm, I'm actually moderating one of them, it's about digital currencies. And I think, in fact, it speaks both the guests, the, the panelists in those uh, events. We've got Queen Maxima from Holland was in the first one, for example, and very senior people from around the world. I think it speaks a little bit to what, as how cryptocurrency underlying technology, blockchain concepts have actually made their way into this more establishment setting. Because of course, now we're having a conversation around central bank digital currencies. I've always felt like the conversation doesn't give Bitcoin its due. It often speaks to CBDCs as something completely different and we're solving the problem that Bitcoin can't. But there's no doubt in my mind that we would have ever gotten where we are with this conversation with China about to launch a digital currency and everything else, if it weren't for the disruptive idea that Satoshi Nakamoto brought to bear. And there's going to be tensions around these two different models. So maybe you can reflect a little bit on what, you know, what some of the stuff that came out of that first panel. And of course, we can't look into the future. We're recording this the day before my panel and people are going to be hearing this afterwards. So I'm sorry, folks, but my clairvoyance is still not, not working so <laughs> limited, well. Limited but we can power. talk about the first session. <laughs> Thoughts on that one, Sheila? Yeah, well, let me just step back a little and give a frame, which is 
you know, the idea that we have these two sessions, of course, to accommodate different time zones, because we are virtual now, we want to ensure that we're not requiring people to be up at, you know, insane hours to access this conversation. Uh, We're calling it resetting digital currencies. And it really is thinking about when you look at the slate of speakers, we're really looking at this moment in time, this moment in time, acknowledging the pandemic, acknowledging you know, the issues around injustice, the quality that the pandemic has surfaced that we were always aware of, but then now are like in our face every single day in very, very profound and often heartbreaking ways. And how, you know, digital currencies could actually, from an inclusion perspective, help address some of those issues. So in the first session was Elizabeth Rossiello, who we've had on the show, uh, moderated for us. We had uh, the queen, we had her majesty, as Michael noted, we had Glenn Hutchins, who was an early crypto investor known to, you know, to many of us. We had uh, Hikmet Ersek, who was the CEO of Western Union. We had Governor Andrew Bailey, uh, who is the governor of the Bank of England. And of course, it's a really interesting combination you know, of people. And I think the thing to note is that you know, three years ago, if we had said we want to have a conversation on digital currencies, it would have been a little challenging to find people going on that very public stage willing to really get into the topic in a session in that level of detail, right? as opposed to being kind of high level and vague about it. This time, I mean, we were like, I'm not going to say people are beating down the door to discuss it, but it certainly was not hard to find a panelist who were more than willing to really get into the details about this conversation. And so I think that alone demonstrates, you know, the transformation. But one thing I think it's really important to note is that, you know, we've talked a little bit about the kinds of attendees, you know, in the annual meeting and, and who tends to be there and the discussions that are often had, many of which are publicly available. They are televised, they are live streamed, they are recorded. So if you miss them or if they are at three o'clock in the morning, like Michael's session is for me, you can always catch them later this year. But I think what's really important to think about is the combination. What are the conversations that we're structuring? And so part of the role of the teams at the forum, the sort of content subject matter, you know, teams here is to say, how can this particular topic, whatever it might be, in this case, digital currencies, really have an impact on the world? Like, and how can we show different perspectives and showcase the opportunity, but also be honest about some of the challenges and bring together a slate of participants who are going to display and be able to discuss that very openly? And so that construct, that curation is part of what I think the forum does so incredibly effectively. And it's part of the responsibility that I take very, very seriously. So when I think about, you know, how did I come to be at the forum? Well, I, I, I don't think this is disparaging myself. I do not think I was the obvious choice for the role that I am in. I think if you had asked the average person who might the World Economic Forum hire to run their, you know, digital currency and blockchain, you know, team, it would have been, well, probably somebody who's, you know, ex Wall Street banker or like very recently, I, of course, had worked with Wall Street, but like this kind of thing, very recently, that kind of person or a cryptographer, you know, someone like that, right? That's not who they wound up with. They wound up with me, person who's, you know, lawyer, background in civic technology, very focused. But I was very, very transparent about like, here's who I am. Here's what I do. Here's what I care about. Here are the boards I sit on, right? It's the ACLU. It's like, this is who I am as a person. And here's what I'm going to bring to this topic. And this is the orientation. And so I do think it's, it is reflective of the forum's focus on, you know, improving the state of the world, which is our stated mission that someone like me with my particular perspective was entrusted with a role like this, right? And was able to build a team and construct an agenda and a voice that really is reflective, I think, of the opportunities that crypto specifically, but blockchain technology represent uh, to really make the world better for an awful lot of people. This is a great story, but there's still a lot of work to do. And this is obviously the, the WEF to me is symbolic of a broader 
issue. And this is the way all change happens. There is this established structures, these established players who see the world in a certain way. And then there's, you know, radicals who are changing it coming from the outside. And the process by which that change is incorporated or resisted or, or whatever is the means by which, you know, we evolve. It's really a microcosm for what everyone's going through. And I want to just pick up a little bit, though, in the context of that, what Andrew Bailey said, right? So he's the, you know, the governor of the Bank of England. And as people who listen to this show know, we spend a lot of time here talking about the future of the financial system. It's my view, and, and I want to talk a little bit about with you, Adrian, with some of the sessions we've listened to, but it's my view that there are real challenges to the international monetary and financial system. You know, Mark Carney has, has clearly identified this. And the idea of the dollar being at the center of it is a big deal. And it coincides with the emergence of these new technologies and China driving its, its digital currency is one piece of that. A lot of people are looking at what the future after the dollar, if there is going to be one in this very, very difficult time we're facing, what it might look like. Is this technology going to play a role? Understanding that CBDCs are a big thing, but others of us, myself included, think that there is going to be a very interesting role for cryptocurrencies in this space, that they're going to play a kind of an outlet in this much more multipolar structure that's emerging. And Bitcoin's a part of that. But Andrew Bailey came out yesterday and said that basically didn't say crypto is going to be around. It's an imperfect version of what marrying should be. Whereas CBDCs, once they develop, will basically make them redundant and that the central bank digital currencies will win. What's going on there? Sheila, uh, Adrian, if you want to weigh in. Well, one thing I think that's interesting to know, my DMs on Twitter got filled up with, because I guess Elizabeth, right at the end of that session, Elizabeth noted that we were going into a, a private session. And so I got a lot of DMs like, what happened in a private session? You know. <laughs> so what I'll say is we had a private session where we had a number of forum constituents that came together and had the next kind of phase of the conversation, which is like, what do we do with the framing that's been provided? And so that is comprised of individuals who have very deep expertise in the topic and those who are relatively new to the topic on purpose, because part of the curation that we do is we try to make sure that we are uh, educating a lot of our constituents about the topical issues that should be top of mind for them if they aren't already, and that they are considering and taking into consideration these different factors, like crypto, like CBDCs, like e-money, and as a general matter, all these different kinds of things, as they go about the business of, you know, impacting millions of lives in sort of almost every case, because these are, you know, very, very powerful people. You know, Governor Bailey, of course, we had an extensive conversation kind of about regulation, about the approaches that could be taken and things like this. Really, the conversation, I think, centered a lot around inclusion, financial inclusion, which is unsurprising because, as you know, Michael, that's something that I'm very passionate about. And we spend a lot of time on the show talking about that. We orient a lot of our episodes deliberately around that topic of conversation. Uh, and one of the reasons that we had Her Majesty on was, of course, because we knew that that was a, a main focus of, of her attention uh, in her role with the UN. And so I think what was interesting was the discussion, you know, which a lot of people participated in and, and we run under Chatham House rules. So I'm, I'm not going to say who said what, but it really was around the different use cases that we've talked about a lot. And so when you think about a CBDC and its role in the financial ecosystem versus pure crypto or versus a stable coin for that matter, those can serve different purposes and they are really intended for different purposes in different jurisdictions. I think that when you talk about CBDC consuming crypto, you know, the question becomes, well, what angle are you looking at that? Like, what is the axis on which? Because I think there's an axis on which that is true. It just isn't taking into consideration, I would argue, the entirety of the financial system and the use cases that sit outside the traditional financial system, which include, you know, the unbanked, the underbanked, wealth creation, the kinds of things that we, you know, NFTs, the kinds of things that we have talked about and will be talking about on our show. All of these statements, I think you have to kind of look at the context and the lens of analysis 
And it is not inaccurate to say that when you look at kind of like the ledger of a central bank, a CBDC is going to could, could potentially play a gigantic role there and a role that probably isn't suited for crypto in some ways, if that is the lens that you're taking. I couldn't certainly speak to anyone's orientation in the conversation that we had, and it's publicly available for anyone to dissect as they will. But certainly I feel like what I'm trying to do in the role that I have here is encourage everyone, particularly those who are in positions to issue regulations or make decisions around the use of digital currencies and cryptocurrencies that will impact very real impact lives, impact welfare, to think as broadly as appropriate or as possible about the potential of this particular topic area and not necessarily remain within a lens of traditional systems, which is kind of where we all tend to orient. Adrian, I mean, you know, as I say, still perhaps a little befuddled about digital currencies. Can you talk a little bit about the forum's role in this context? Because it is a radical outsider's view, right, that Bitcoin should have a place and that this is constructive for the world to have this sort of very disruptive force playing a role, as dangerous as it seems. But it's very, very understandable that the power bases will resist that. Talk a little bit about what role the forum has played in kind of trying to get folks to find the common ground in this difficult process. I mean, look, it's fascinating listening to your discussion, because although it's uh, conducted in, in terms that uh, leave me somewhat confused, you know, my training as a historian, I look back on the medieval period with, you know, when the German Hertz Mountain suddenly started producing silver and the effect that had on the Renaissance and on trade in Europe during the, you know, the golden age of people producing these incredible artworks. Then you look forward to, say, you know, the 19th century, the gold standard, you look at the breakdown of Bretton Woods, you know, in the 1970s. And I think, you know, the history of money is about the history of power. And I think that's another conversation that where people really need to be brought in. Because a lot of the times we talk about these things, we talk about what's important for money to do, but we don't talk about, frankly, and I don't mean we the forum, I mean, we generally, the people who have positions of authority in central banks and other places, don't talk about what power means in relation to these currency issues, because it's all about power. Not for nothing does the forum bring powerful people together, because they have interests. They are interested in maintaining either positions of power or building positions of power. And you know that aspect of currency is pretty fundamental. Back in 1945, you know, when they were negotiating at Bretton Woods, Keynes came up with a form of currency that would suit everyone very nicely called the Bancor. I don't know if you guys have discussed yep. that before. But, you know, that would have been, yep. if you like, an early version of, of probably what you're all talking about now. And, you know, that Bancor obviously never got anywhere thanks to the Russian agent who was the chief negotiator of the American government. <laughs> it's a fabulous knew, story, huh? that one. Yes. Who knew? <laughs> These kinds of issues about power, about what currency means and what currency delivers to people, they're really important conversations. And I do think, I think we owe it to audiences is to help them understand what that means and to unpack some of that talk. Because often we talk about the buzzwords of wanting to include people, but we don't tell them how to be included in the conversations we're having. And I think that piece is, is something where we can play a part. I want to get to inclusion here because I think it's also relevant, both of you, I think, to weigh in here. First of all, very glad that you, you made that point about power. It's, it's definitely a key theme. And we think that you yes. know, Money Reimagined plays this role for us. We play a role in that to try to get that conversation going. And before I just continue, I, I should actually also highlight the fact that 
the speakers in my panel that I'll be moderating. So I've got Tharman Shamugaratnam, who is the Senior Minister of the Government of Singapore, Sara Pantoliano, who's the Chief Executive of Overseas Development Institute, and Zhu Min, who's the Chairman of the National Institute for Financial Research in the People's Republic of China. That'll be happening tomorrow. By the time you are listening to this, folks, you can catch the public part of that in a recording. Let's just shift gears a little bit, but this is still very relevant. You opened up the forum, Adrian, essentially, as far as I could tell, with Klaus Schwab's uh, framing of, of things around you know, his new book, Stakeholder Capitalism. And there was a very high-powered panel implementing stakeholder capitalism. Named, you know, Gillian Tett from the Financial Times was the moderator. We've had Mark Benioff from, from Salesforce, Klaus himself, obviously, Lawrence Fink, CEO of BlackRock, Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, Christina Georgieva, Managing Director of the IMF, and Brian Moynihan, who is the, the Chairman and Chief Executive of Bank of America. Big things, talking about how do we evolve capitalism to something that is more inclusive. Something that was quoted in the WEF's take, I didn't get to listen to the whole thing, but I, I heard this quote from Benioff, and it's the, he says, the business of business used to be business. Today, the business of business is improving the state of the world. And I got to tell you, I'm a journalist. <laughs> You're an ex-journalist. My BS monitor immediately went up there. And I was like, okay, this is all nice talk. But the reality is a business and capitalism itself is intrinsically about self-interest. And to me, what matters in capitalism is what rules get built around it. And capitalism will work within those rules. So the real challenge is how do we write the rules for it? And this is where blockchain gets very interesting because really what a blockchain is, is a governance system. It's a governance system that basically holds all the parties to this system accountable to a set of common interests. Like everybody agrees to the protocol, they work around that protocol. It's kind of a tragedy of the common solution in some respects without there being an entity in charge. And in an international digital world where problems like climate change and pandemics are, are just refuse to abide by the boundaries set by nation states, it kind of needs something in a decentralized manner. So I, I think the sentiment here is fabulous. And I think it's really important that we do think about how capitalism itself is driven towards these entities, but it's more about setting rules and structures in those places. And I just don't think that the existing framework for rulemaking can even handle it anymore. So just wondering, like, where is that conversation going in terms of how do we get to the point? Because Salesforce wants to make the highest profits it can for its shareholders. How does it do that and still be all about improving the state of the world? If I can jump in there, I think to me, it's pretty straightforward. If you're hiring people to work at Salesforce and you're Mark Benioff, and they're walking through streets that aren't repaired with homeless people on every corner, paying prices for accommodation that take away the incredible salaries that you're offering them, then I think you're going to start saying to yourself, something here has broken down in the way that things are being distributed. And I think that's why the whole stakeholder capitalism theme is so powerful now, because it's not a new theme. You know, it's 50 years old, at least with Klaus and before that in his, his imagining. You know, he grew up in West Germany, you know, a divided country in the 1950s and 60s, where there were whole cities that were reduced to kind of grids. You could look at them on Google Maps and they would look exactly as they did in real life because they were just lines in the road. They had to be built from nothing. And to rebuild cities and to rebuild a culture after something as devastating as the Second World War, every single player in a society needs to be involved because you can't sit back and be a free rider in that kind of environment. You know, if you're a local business, 
damn right it matters if your people can't get a shelter. Damn right it matters if there's no transport to bring them to work. You know, all of the functions of civic life require support and they require you to be engaged with them. And if you think about the United States and, you know, probably the Anglo-Saxon experience, that hasn't been the case. You know, Britain hasn't been invaded since the Normans came across in 1066. And, you know, the United States has been invasion free for goodness knows how long. Both countries have traditions where you get by and you sort out your own problems. And that kind of capitalism is just not possible in a country in ruins. And, you know, Klaus is kind of preaching that. And what we've seen is, you know, over the last probably, what, 40 years since the Reagan revolution, I guess, and the Thatcher revolution in the UK, we've seen people say in economics, in politics, government has to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And, you know, business can come and take up the slack and business can get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's caused things to move, the pendulum to move in one particular direction. And now people are saying on the right, as well as on the left, you know, populists as well as kind of pragmatists are saying, hang on a second, things have maybe swung a bit too far in that direction. You know, Mark Benioff knows he cannot solve San Francisco's housing problem with a Salesforce dividend. He knows he can't solve it with philanthropy. He knows it needs politics and it needs not just politics, it needs civic society, it needs other people, it needs other actors. I think a lot of CEOs are realizing that. And, you know, you look at, for example, situations like China and pollution. It doesn't matter who you are in China. You can be on the Politburo. You can be one of the poorest workers in one of the hardest hit agricultural villages in China. But you're going to breathe the same air. And, you know, in Beijing, if you're President Xi Jinping or if you are a taxi driver, you're going to breathe Beijing air. And there's an incentive in that for people to make life better. You know, we saw it in Victorian times. You know, you could die of cholera if you were Prince Albert, you know, Victoria, Queen Victoria's husband, you know, who died of cholera. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. So I think we've reached an inflection point in the early 21st century that says things have to be rebalanced. And that means business starting to think more about its suppliers, its consumers and its employees, and also about the responsibilities it owes to the societies it operates in. That's what I happen to believe. And I'm lucky because I work at an organization that kind of happens to believe the same thing. I do think that moment has come. And I trust me, I'm cynical as, as the next person. In fact, probably Sheila would say I'm one of the more cynical people at the forum. <laughs> but, you know, underneath the cynicism is a little tiny optimist trying to get out. <laughs> Yes, your optimistic heart beats under all the layers of cynicism. You know, well, I would consider myself a pragmatic optimist, as I've, I've called myself. I do think there is broader societal awareness and awareness. I think that is mirrored in the awareness of leaders, you know, uh, about certain problems, I think, more than others. So I certainly think that like net zero pledges, right? Like we know that Larry Fink, like a lot of conversations that happened in Davos and on panels and other things really did lead, just from the anecdotal evidence, it certainly seems like directly led to a lot of the conversations around new creation of new metrics around ESG and, and divestment of BlackRock. It was very significant, right, in terms of thinking through the accountability that they're creating around issues around climate. I think that is all directly linked to the fact that, you know, the forum featured Greta you know, Thunberg and some of these kinds of speakers to kind of really make climate a focus over the last decade and really hit that very, very hard as a major theme of our 50th anniversary you know, last year. To me, it's been interesting to really 
just to see which aspects of the problem of the commons, right, have, of the global commons have really been adopted and championed by business and which ones have maybe gotten a little less attention. Uh, so I, you know, just to kind of change gears here, I was very excited. I've been very excited, of course, but I'm glad that we finally were, we were able to see the launch at, at the Davos agenda of our racial justice workforce. You know, and the idea that after Black Lives Matter, uh, that movement, after the summer that we had in the United States, this is taking kind of an American lens on this, but after the summer we had here, there was a huge movement, again, led by some of these CEOs, but at the initiation really of the forum to say, we need to do better. You know, we really, really need to figure out uh, how to increase diversity, how to make inclusion a more important topic, how to go beyond just kind of a box check of numbers and create a real commitment to inclusion and more inclusive workforces. Because I think that the problems you're talking about, Adrian, and you, Michael, that are, are systemic problems, right? They are inextricably linked to each other. And so the issues of workplace inequity are directly linked to issues around access to the financial system, to redlining, de-risking, like things we've talked about here. These all go together. And I think that there is increasing awareness on the part of world leaders, but really on the part of everyone, I would like to think, and I, you know, this is kind of what our show is about, that you can't look at these systems in silos. You have to look at the interconnectedness of all the different things that are occurring and think about the impact that that's having. Why is the pandemic, you know, so much worse? I live in the mission in San Francisco. We're a heavily Latinx and heavily working class minority neighborhood. Why are our rates so much higher than other parts of the exact same city? What is the reason for that? It's an economic reason. It's a transit reason. It's a housing reason, right? There's so many of these systems that connect. And so the idea that we can kind of look just at E or S, it doesn't really work like that. All of these things link. There is an awareness of these problems and that people like Mark Benioff see that Salesforce can't advance unless this bigger problem is solved. It's very clear that many, many people understand what needs to happen and have great intent to do so. But we always have this coordination problem in the world, right? And it's all, who's the first mover? Who's free riding, right? So this was always a problem with the, the Paris Accord that took so long because nobody wanted to take on all the, the burden of this if, if they could just free ride on somebody else. And so one of the nice things, again, about like, and that's why you have governments, right? To say, this is how we mediate that problem. And so you must do X. I think there's real potential for sort of software protocols that have governance systems baked into them to think hard about how do we actually create a framework so that the Mark Benioffs of this world can do what they want to do without being undermined by everyone else. And I think that's just an important part of this conversation. And I want to actually sort of take that and tie these two things together because the racial injustice thing, something that came up that Cyril Ramaphosa said, the president of, of South Africa, about the vaccine rollout, I thought was really, really powerful. He essentially was talking about inequity around the world as the vaccines come. And let me just quote him here. He said, we are deeply concerned about the issue of vaccine nationalism which unless addressed will endanger the recovery of all countries. And to me, this is a similar problem of coordination and self-interest in a, in a sort of essentially a world that doesn't have a world government. You've got to deal with this and the weakest end up being undermined, right? The idea that somehow it's all a race, throw as much money as you can as vaccines for yourselves. I'm sure that people on the forum are well aware of this, and this is a big topic of conversation, but the, but the problems you're dealing with are really, as far as I'm concerned, about governance and authority. Can you shed some light on what's going on in terms of that conversation? And then Sheila, I'd like to segue this back actually to, to conversations about blockchain governance in an international level, that there is a real connection here. So firstly, yeah. Adrian, on that vaccine 
nationalism problem that, that Ramaphosa so eloquently spoke of? So, I mean, I think he's absolutely right to identify that as, as a big problem. And it does speak to one of the issues that the forum gets involved in, which is, you know, there is no such thing as a world government. There's not about to be a world government. They're probably, you know, in your grandchildren's lifetimes and their grandchildren's lifetimes, I doubt there'll be such a thing. But what there is, is massive coordination failures. And that's what you see in institutions, in governance, in industries, you know, you see it everywhere. Big, big coordination failures. And what the forum tries to do very often is to bring people together to kind of fix some of those coordination failures or to try to triage them, if you like. And, you know, when you see a moment of disruption, that's usually when you have the biggest opportunity to affect change. Because when things start to settle down, that's when the moment is gone. That's when the power players have established themselves and they're too powerful to listen to anyone else. Right now, for example, if you go to supplicate before Facebook, you know, you have to go through all the different layers of Facebook and you have to go and, you know, uh, pay your dues. And, and it's like probably visiting a medieval king in his court. But it used to be like that. But the moment when it didn't used to be like that is over. And so, you know, when they're in play, if you like, then there's a moment where we can bring to bear some of the interests that need to be heard. And you're at that moment, I think, from listening to your conversation in the space that you're in where you can bring in things like inclusion, where you can talk about protecting people, where you can talk about making sure this technology actually benefits people who need it the most. When the real power starts to kind of settle, that moment might be gone. And, you know, you might not be able to have those kind of conversations or you might be marginalized in having. And so I do think there is a point in trying to be at the moment in the development of technologies and other things where you can try to push them in a direction that recognizes the needs of other stakeholders. And as an organization, we can't do that because we don't represent anyone and we don't have that authority. But what we do have is a convening power where we can bring in people who have the political authority, who have the civil society authority, who have the academic knowledge and leadership, and even the kind of faith acknowledgement to kind of have those conversations. And that, to me, is why the forum remains a really interesting place to work and why the mission, the forum, you know, which is so lofty and kind of easily ridiculed, you know, improving the state of the world is actually a really good guide. And it's quite a practical thing because if you're not improving the state of the world, move on to something else. You know, you might as well just give up and move on to something else. So I think, you know, it's really fascinating hearing you both talking about what you're talking about, because I think you are at that really fascinating moment where, you know, real change can happen and where good things can be done. It's a great conversation to kind of be uh, listening to. What are you going to do about it, Sheila? That's, that's a call to you. <laughs> well, you know, I, again, I agree with you, Adrian. I think that we, we are in the middle of this, this tremendously important moment. It's not just exciting. You know, I think it's exciting for different people for different reasons. But again, part of what we talk about on the show is like, how do we leverage this opportunity? How do we ensure that what we're doing really is improving the state of the world? You know, I'm an American even though I'm, I'm a woman of color, you know, I'm the spouse and daughter of immigrants, but I certainly was born and raised in America. And I have a, an American bias that is, I would be foolish to think I could ever fully, you know, step aside from that. And we talk a lot about dollarization and other kinds of movements that have really happened and the impact they've had around the world. It's important to be really cognizant of what these things mean. It's not that we, we naively believe the U.S. government should not be, you know, first and foremost, looking out for American interests. That is the U.S. government's primary job, you know, I think it's very fair to say, 
But we do have to be very honest about the implications of that for the world economy and particularly for the standard of living of many people around the world. So as we look to embed some of these new opportunities around digital currencies, you know, crypto, USDC, you know, whatever it might be, different differently issues, uh, central bank digital currencies, what are the consequences? What are we exporting? What are What is kind of going along silently with some of those opportunities or some of those exports of these kinds of policies? Yeah. What am I trying to do about it? Well, we're trying to do an awful lot about it. One thing I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is that we did relatively quietly, well, maybe not anymore now, we have a, a digital currency governance consortium. And so that was announced last year in Davos. And so this year, uh, in conjunction with the Davos Agenda, we actually released our vision. You know, And so we created a, essentially a concept note, if you want to call it that. And over the course of the next you know, few months, we're really building out the work that's in there. It centers a lot around financial inclusion. It centers a lot around opportunity. It thinks about design. There's a lot of different components there that we think are critically important for everyone to be considering when it comes time to really instantiating digital currencies as they begin to take root and really take off. And a lot of the panelists, including Michael, I actually think every panelist on your upcoming panel are members of the steering committee of the Digital Currency Governance Consortium. And so the sheer variety, the diversity of perspectives that we have geographically in terms of you know, civil society representation, academics, uh, cryptographers, and we have a whole bunch of exchanges. We've pulled together this giant, you know, frankly, somewhat unwieldy at times, actually, group of individuals and institutions that all have stake here. And they all come with different needs, agendas, desires, and part of the, the magic of it, and part of the art, I think, of, of what I and, and the team here does is gently, you know, try to curate and create these conversations and create some of this insight. From this, I think we'll just take it to Adrian, but I mean, there's a, an interesting segue here to get back to sort of the bigger mission of the forum. What I've been impressed by in terms of the way that Sheila and her team have looked at this governance problem is there's this idea of presidio principles, the idea that there, there's like a starting set of standards that this has to be built with. There's so many different stakeholders involved in designing a multilateral or a multi-stakeholder structure, a governance system that inherently has to be somehow separate from government, but also connected to it. We know this from the way the internet was built and the governance systems that were built around domain registries and everything else with ICANN and IETF and these things. But you have to have these first principles of like, do no harm, right? What, what are we protecting here? And you, you alluded to it earlier, Adrian, about like, now's the opportunity like, to think about diversity. Like, do not build into the system, for example, overly heavy financial regulation, which just makes it absolutely impossible for the unbanked and the poor to participate in this thing, right? Don't build what you think are the right protections if they're going to actually you know, exacerbate things like the digital divide. The fact that that's a starting point, I think, is a very encouraging one. But to the point that Sheila was making, this is a multi-stakeholder, very diverse. There are completely different interests in this very early stage of building out what the integration of these very different governance models, blockchains, are going to look like into you know, our, our digital economy. Again, don't expect you to talk about the details of that. But you know, you've seen, as I said, this over the years, the forum playing this role about bringing all these stakeholders together. And maybe you can sort of take that as a starting point to look into the future, because we've got so many challenges. And they all, I think, entail essentially this. Uh, how do we coordinate multiple interests around these big global challenges? What are the principles, actually, that the forum would want to bring to, to how we address not only blockchain governance, but obviously climate change and, the, and, of course, the pandemic and everything else going forward in terms of bringing all these parties to, 
some level of coordinated agreement on the best outcomes? You know, we're not a decision-making body and we're not a, an executive. You know, we're actually a very small organization of a few hundred people. And what we do is try to act as a kind of connective tissue on critical issues where we can bring people to have conversations who might otherwise struggle to answer each other's emails or might otherwise not pick the phone up to one another. You know, to people outside of the process, that sounds really stupid. Because, you know, when I remember as a journalist, I was like, well, why the hell can't so-and-so pick the phone up and call this person and just sort it out? You know, just pick the phone up and get on and do it. You know, make it happen for crying out loud. And then you get into organizational processes and you look behind the scenes and you, you know, you have the kind of job that I have and the kind of job that Sheila has. And you go, Jesus Christ, I'm amazed that anything ever happens anywhere. It's like, you know, <laughs> yep. it's really, really hard. And so between those two positions of like, pick the damn phone up and my God, you know, we're in a world of kind of mud. Having an organization that tries to play this role of triaging, it gets us into a lot of trouble. Yes, there are people who think that, you know, if I rip off my face, I am underneath a kind of, you know, well-trained, uh, you know, guana lizard. Actually, <laughs> I I'm not going to rip it off. <laughs> But actually, it's really, really important work. And, you know, you look at Paris, for example, you just talked about the Paris Climate Agreement. You know, and one of the things we learned from, from the failure of the previous meeting, uh, you know, in Scandinavia was that governments by themselves didn't feel that they could do deals. And that's pretty fundamental. And, you know, do you know, one of the reasons why was because in China, there is not a mandate to negotiate. I don't want to go back mm. into history and time. But one of the big kind of political developments in the Western world was representative democracy. And what does that mean? It means that the person I vote for, whatever, can do what the hell they like. They're not mandated to come back to me and say, is it okay if I vote for this? Or is it okay if I do that? For China at that moment in time, China had to confer and go through a consensual process in its own leadership about what its position was. And that makes negotiating very hard. You know, and if you look at you know, how global governance works, it can't be the case that governments can kind of come in and, and all just say, okay, we're signing up. I mean, remember what happened in the 20th century. You know, the US underpinned the, you know, the peace settlement after World War I, and then US Senate and Congress walked away from it. You know, the US negotiated a brilliant deal. The people who were elected by the people told the president and his negotiators to get lost, frankly. So doing these kind of deals is really, really difficult. What we can do is say, look, we, we know we want to go. What about if we get together some of the other people in this process, like business, for example, which we know very well, and say to them, this is where government wants to get to. How could you help on that journey? Or where we go to civil society and say, look, you know, you're an advocacy group for green issues. You want this kind of movement. How does this company come some way to not looking really terrible in your eyes? How do they kind of make what you'd call progress? If you said that they were serious, what would it be? And so for things like that, that's our purpose and our relevance. And that's what we try and do. And that's where we try and find the issues that matter. And I mean, let's be frank, climate, if there isn't a bigger issue than that right now, I don't know what there is. Let's all hope that by the time, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in my wheelchair sitting on the porch a couple of years time, that's not the issue, that something else has moved on. And we're talking about space exploration or, you know, right moon mining rights to Mars or something else. Right now, we've got to sort the planet out. We've got to fix it. And we've got to make sure that we can all live here. That's problem number one. 
<laughs> you know, I, I just posted on something on social, I don't remember what site, just something recently that one of the things I love about working at the forum is how much exposure I get to ideas I know nothing about. And so I'm going to botch this, but our colleague, Emma Christensen, you know, launched uh, again during the Davos agenda, something on sailors, basically, and so how you kind of look at human trafficking and sort of indentured servitude that's happening on ships and a commitment by major, I mean, all the major kind of shipping companies to basically remedy this. And I was just fascinated by this. It's something I knew almost nothing about. I mean, I had a vague idea that it was happening for sure, because I mean, a normal person who reads the news, but I didn't realize um, we were doing so much work in this space. This is going to sound naive, and there's no way to say it without sounding naive, but I do think that the injection of ideas is really powerful. And it's really, really powerful to shape conversations in ways that different perspectives are brought together. And so it isn't even about the picking up of the phone necessarily, though I think that's a critical point of the curation and connection and interstitial tissue that we can be. It's also introducing some of these ideas, you know, to people that bring their own very busy, you know, schedules and lives and biases and responsibilities and, you know, accountabilities, frankly, to the table. And creating the germ of that idea and then creating not just like, you know, you kind of see something and you got to move on, but also then creating a follow-up system, a follow-up structure to help that idea become more seasoned and refined to bring that individual who is, you know, usually a, a significant person who has the power to affect, you know, often millions of people in their daily lives, bringing them along in that journey and co-creating is a gerund that we use a lot here. And it sounds like, yeah, blah, blah, but truly, like truly co-creating some of these initiatives and some of these structures with these different, you know, interests and bringing those perspectives into it. So on that note, I, I think we're going to close this out. I just want to make a couple of observations from what you both said. And that is, and this is where I'm going to get all those Bitcoiners and others to understand that the line dividing what they think is something, the supposedly big elitist world of the World Economic Forum and their scrappy, rebellious ra radicals in the Bitcoin community isn't quite as hard to cross as they might imagine. Because in both of these environments, we've constantly encountered this convening problem. And it's what you're both speaking to is the power of convening, the power literally of just bringing people together, understanding that the differences are huge. And this is a, just a fundamental problem with blockchain governance, right? Because it's, it's no one in charge. So you're always having to deal with this. Immediately thinking of, you know, my good friend Pindar Wong, you know, he was the vice chair of ICANN and, you know, he's just been a hugely important figure out of Hong Kong working with principles of, of internet governance around blockchain governance. And he recognized in the early days of the, what was the scaling debate in Bitcoin. Bitcoiners know exactly what we're talking about when, do you increase the size of the block size or not? This seems like a very nerdy problem for any, anyone outside the world. But there's huge amounts of money at stake and there's huge problems for the community to resolve these things in terms of a, upgrading a protocol that nobody controls, right? And Pindar and a few others just said, you know what we need to do? We actually need to, for the first time ever, bring the miners and the developers and all the other stakeholders into a room to physically actually meet. And it was absolutely instrumental in helping, I think, get us towards things like SegWit and the various other upgrades that happened. And as much as there was a hard fork and everything else, it really wasn't as messy as it could have been. And it moved forward because of the fact that there was an effort to convene. And that's what you're telling me, Adrian, is kind of what the World Economic Forum does around these other issues. So, so there's real parallels there. And it's, I think it'd be nice to be able to see if there's any takeaway from this particular, this episode. We're not as different as people might, might say, say we are. So on that note, I'm going to thank you both for giving us a little opportunity to 
peel back the curtain and get some insights into the way that this very important institution works. Uh, I myself am very much looking forward to my panel next week. I wish, you know, to be honest, you weren't holding the, the Singapore event in early May, Adrian, because it happens to coincide with what I would argue in the blockchain space is the most important convening event of the year. And this is a shameless shill, but <laughs> consensus is the biggest and most important Bitcoin blockchain event. It's obviously run by Coindesk and it happens in May. Sheila will be involved in it. It's going to be a very busy week. It's been a bit of a pity that we've got this competing interest, but there wasn't nothing we could do about that. Anyway, but thank you very much for your generous time today, Adrian and Sheila, as always. Let's keep this conversation going, everyone. So thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Money Reimagined. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, and Adrian Monk. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Mussel, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Do you have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll dig into Cambodia's central bank digital currency, known as Project Bakong. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. 